Here we stand on the cusp of a brand new year. As we look back to this past year, we have seen nothing but battle zones on many different fronts. Russia's hostility toward the Ukraine shows no sign of retreat or uh, slowing. Israel's battle with their aggressive neighbor Hamas has now spilled over to Hezbollah in Lebanon and one can only imagine that this is going to eventuate in a conflict with the financier of uh, Hezbollah and Hamas, Iran itself. Uh, Anti-Semitism has spread like uh, a wind-blown forest fire around the globe. But this morning, I'm not focusing on these kind of political, military kinds of battles. I want us to think about a battle that is going on inside the visible church. Now, if you have only um, uh, a few brain cells that are attentive to the world around us, you know that there is a culture war that has divided this country. Um, and it has many different tentacles. Um, it, it used to be that the, the letters D-E-I were well known about for, by people in churches as the Latin word for God, as in the f Latin phrase Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. But but now we we find that um, the letters D E I are an abbreviation, standing for diversity, e equity, and inclusion, and. Uh, it, it, that's, that's all culture speak for showing fairness to everyone. However, and there's a big however here, the um, progressive left elites are the ones holding the definition for what is fairness and those that are the, to be the recipients of this so-called fairness. They have hijacked these words, diversity, equity, inclusion, just like they have hijacked the word tolerance. Well, tolerance is a good thing. Uh, putting up with other, other people in their sinfulness, in their joy, in the fact that they talk too much or they stay too long, that's a good thing. And yet they have hijacked that word as well they will be tolerant as, as long as you agree with them. And the moment that you disagree with them, they will turn around and charge you with being intolerant. Um, the, uh, the, the culture wars um, just, they continue to mushroom. Trans athletes are changing how high school sports are run. 
racism is rapidly boiling over so that young white boys are taught to feel shame because of the fact that they're white and uh, they're males. Promoting racism and, and all kinds of other, other messes. Uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade uh, a year and a half ago. Ironically, we have more abortions in 2023 than we have in past years. We live in a nutsoid world. Wayne Watson released a song way back uh, almost 40 years ago now, 1985, a song called Giants in the Land. The lyrics begin, they're not hiding anymore. They're not ashamed anymore. Evil deeds done in secret, they're celebrating sin on the streets. Consume the innocent like lions that never get enough to eat. There are giants in the land. Giants in the land. Giants in the land. What we called bad in 1985, which prompted his lyrics, has just grown exponentially. But again, um, my concern is not with what's going on in the world. My concern this morning is what's going on inside the visible church. I expect that the unsaved pagan world will do their unsaved pagan activity. Back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan spoke to, to, uh, to Eve. And he, he said in, in the context of, of, uh, of um, not eating the forbidden fruit, serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's what unsafe people do. They want to be like God. They want to be the ones who choose their destiny, who choose the circumstances, who choose the lifestyle, who, who are in control. My responsibility as a pastor and preacher, in part, is to help you build a worldview, a way of looking at life through the lens of Scripture. Yes, um, Genesis chapter 3 is a, a, a present reality, and we see people looking to promote their own agenda all the time. But we who are in the church must be a different kind of people. We have been called out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. We have been called into a community of faith. Our life is different. It must be different than the world outside. We expect the world outside to go crazy, to pursue their own selfish desires and ambitions. But what about people in the church? Inside the visible church. Christian apologist Philip E. Johnson writes this, with God out of the picture, every human being becomes a godlet with as much authority to set standards as any other godlet or combination of godlets. This is where natural theology comes in. I mean, I mean uh, natural um, uh, thinking of, of unsaved fallen people. Um, there, there is a cult of self. It's all about me. It's the opposite of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The larger catechism begins, the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the fallen unsaved world has turned that on its ear to say that the chief end of man is to glorify (laughs) me and enjoy whatever I want for as long as I want. I heard an interview this last week by Thaddeus Williams. He teaches systematic theology at Biola University. He released a new book um, uh, two, two, two months ago which is the subject of, of, uh, of the conversation, the podcast that I heard. And he, uh, he, he titled his book, Don't Follow Your Heart. And he told a story about how he titled the book as he did. He had an observant little elementary school girl, daughter of his, that came into his office one time after hearing something on the media. And she said, Daddy, this is what I heard. She heard the message, follow your heart. And this was her response. Daddy, I don't want to follow my heart. I want to follow God's heart. May we have many, many, many more of those kinds of elementary school girls. In Judges chapter uh, 25, last chapter of the book, last verse of the book, it ends with this statement. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Do you know who was who that was referencing? The Israelites. Let's bring it into New Testament terms. Churched people. They did that which was right in their own eyes. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. 
Our main text this morning, Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah is what we call um, uh, the weeping prophet. Uh, Because of the charge that God gave him, he was was called to to, uh, call God's people, the Israelites, back to himself. He was given a tough, tough, tough assignment. He was charged to issue this call, this demand, if you will, to a group of people that had been hardened, recalcitrant, unwilling to repent and turn back to the Lord for generations. Such that, at the, toward the end of, of Jeremiah's ministry, the Lord sent his, his, um, his hand of discipline into the land of Judah, where Jeremiah lived, through the Babylonian leader Nebuchadnezzar and his horde. And as a result of their years of unrepentance, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, um, God kicked them out of his land. Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me. This is uh, Jeremiah speaking initially. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them. For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Jeremiah is not wild about this assignment the Lord has given him. But he will be faithful even to the end. You'll notice in verse 3, that there is a a, a quotation mark. God is speaking at this point. And God is confirming to uh, Jeremiah what Jeremiah has seen. He's looking accurately at what's going on among his people. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor, and do not trust your brother, because every brother deals craftily, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. These are what we would call in New Testament terms, churched people. These are the Israelites. We have a word for these kind of people. As a Latin root, the word is nominal, meaning literally, in name only. These Israelites would have very, been very quick to claim, 
We are God's people. They are nominal Jews. Jews in name only. Here's here's the root problem. Verse 3, end of verse 3. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Look at verse 6. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord, even though they are God's people in air quotes. Verse 12. Why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert so that no one passes through? The Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart, and after the Baals, as their father taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. God, you would do this to your people, in air quotes, Verse 25 of chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. Let's bring this into New Testament terms. These people sitting in, uh, in, in churches on padded pews singing, singing nice Christian songs. These are people that said, hey, I've been baptized. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, I was six years old at the time, but still, I, I was, I, I, I'm part of this community. Genuinely so, or in name only? The root problem, the tragic result, the sustained objection, this is the battle that was going on among God's people. Second page of your notes. I want to spend a little bit of time look at God's chastening rebuke that we find in verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts Boast of this, 
that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. The Hebrew word translated boast, as in the New American Standard, New International ESV, it's also been translated glory. He who glories, let him not glory in this. Um, it denotes one's joy and delight. It denotes the very center of one's focus. The, the very core of their being. This is what's most important. Other, um, other translations of this word in alternate forms gives us some insight into the color of this word. It can mean to make a fool of. Job 12, Isaiah 44. It can mean to act like a madman. 1 Samuel 21, Jeremiah 51. So to proudly rest your weight, to, to, to stake your, your value, your worth, your destiny on your wisdom, your might, your riches, is to glory in brains, brawn, and bucks. This is the way of the world. We expect that of people outside. But to glory in brains, brawn, and bucks is to act like a madman. It's to make yourself a fool before Almighty God. Jeremiah continues into chapter 10, verse 2. Look at verse 2. Do not learn the way of the nations. You have been called, O people of God, to a different life. Don't glory in, 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 the, in the stuff uh, that we, we, we see in the world. Glory in this. Stay focused on this. Center your life around this, that you might know me, understand me, worship me. Follow God's heart, not your heart. Follow Jesus, not anything else. Certainly not the world. All right, we've talked about the battle before us. And it rages in our hearts. I'm not talking about a political battle. I'm not necessarily talking about a cultural battle. I'm talking about that spiritual battle 
over who's in charge in your life. Now, for the next few minutes, I'd like to direct my words and the text of Scripture to the men that are here. Ladies, I'll let you listen in. I hope you are equally convicted by the truth of Scripture. I'm almost tempted to ask the men to stand so that I can speak to you directly, face to face, mano to mano. I'm not going to do that. The reason why I I say that and I, uh, um, I, I like to direct some words specifically to you men is because of the biblical creation mandate that we wear. Um, the, the creation mandate has, uh, has, has two, two foci to it. In Genesis chapter 2, it was to Adam that God said, I want you to keep and to cultivate what I have created. And then it says later in chapter 2, I want you to leave your family and cleave to your wife. In other words, it is the man's responsibility. He is first in line and first in responsibility to work and raise a family. That's our charge, men. It comes to us from the Lord God Almighty. It's part of his creative order. This happened before the fall. Because of the fall, there is all kinds of energy uh, directed against us fulfilling our calling. And that's the difficulty. That's the rub. And it's easier for guys in the midst of this spiritual battle in which we find ourselves, it's easier for us guys to become disengaged and uninvolved. And I'd let, let, let the ladies take care of it. That can't be. We, we expect that in the world. But we are different. So I want to direct your attention now to two, nest, two New Testament passages of Scripture that focuses on the victor, focuses on Jesus. If it is our calling, which I believe it is, to not follow the world and instead to follow the Lord Jesus, we need to take a very close, very careful, exhausting look at who Jesus is and what he does and emulate that. Don't follow the world. Follow Jesus. Two passages of Scripture, and the first one is in Matthew chapter 11. I invite you to turn over with me. Matthew 11, very end of the chapter. I'm going to read this particular verse from King James. Verse 29 reads, Jesus is speaking, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For, meaning because, I'm giving you a reason why, for I am meek and lowly of heart. The 18th century British hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote a hymn. First line reads, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. In our day, meekness means weakness. We might even go so far as to say that, that, a, that a meek person is one who is pusillanimous, a person who has a spine of cooked spaghetti, an effeminate person, a person who has no strength, no vitality. But as is often the case, words and their meaning change. Jesus certainly did not speak of of himself being weak or spineless, pusillanimous. No, not at all. Let's explore the, the, the use of that Greek word in antiquity. The Greek leader Xenophon used this word, translated meek, to describe war horses that were well-trained and well-disciplined. Socrates used this word, particular, uh, translated um, meek, of one who could argue his case without losing his temper. Plato used this Greek word, translated meek, to describe a victorious general who was merciful to a conquered people. Aristotle used this particular Greek word, translated meek, to speak of someone concerned about justice, but whose anger does not not degrade into revenge or retaliation. A meek person is that person who is strong, authoritative, full of vitality, that is all under control. What a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. He was strong, authoritative, and yet it was all under control. Follow him. Emulate him. Second passage of Scripture I'm going to have you turn to is in the book of John, chapter 13.
At the beginning of chapter 13, John gives us some context in anticipation of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. He doesn't want, that is the Apostle John, does not want us to be unaware of the mindset of Jesus prior to him stooping in humility to take on the role of a slave in washing his disciples' feet. Verse 1, John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, dot, dot, dot. You see, all those... those, all those, those three verses that I just read are, are just simply giving us the mindset, the, 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 the attitude of Jesus as he, is, as he is coming to this moment where he's going to wash the disciples' feet. He wants us to realize Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knows what Judas has done. He knows this traitorous man has set in motion a betrayal. Jesus knows that it will eventuate in his death. He knows that. He knows that he is going to be with the Father again. He knows why he came. He knows what he's to accomplish. He knows that he is soon to be returning to heaven. All of this is in Jesus' mind. He knows who he is and why he's there. And and so out of of great love, out of a a desire to give, out of a desire to serve, verse 4, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. What I want you to see here, men, is that Jesus took the initiative. He knew what needed to be done He saw the big picture, and he stood up, and he did it. He didn't wait for somebody else to initiate. He didn't wait to respond to to someone's whining or complaining or simply a statement of fact that everybody had dirty, dirty, dusty feet. No, he looked at the big picture And out of love, out of a heart of concern, compassion, love, service, he gave of himself. 
I mean, that's, that's a picture that we must own. That is part of bearing our responsibility. That's who we are. As, as a part of our creation mandate in our work, in our raising, caring for family, we, we do as Jesus did. We are who we reflect the, the character of who Jesus is. My, my, my concern here is not, not, for, not for our particular fellowship necessarily. I, I just know the nature of mankind, even redeemed mankind. We want to take the easy way out. We, we want to go where there is the least amount of conflict, greatest amount of blessing and benefit to me. We still have that ingrained nature within us, though we are still redeemed. I, I, I want us to make sure that we are part of God's invisible church, that we are indeed redeemed people, and that as such, our focused attention is not on the ways of the world, and we don't celebrate the Elon Musks and the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and the Warren Buffetts chasing after um, uh, brains and brawn and bucks. Uh, our focused attention is on knowing Christ and walking with Christ wherever we are so that as other people look at us, they see Jesus. They see meek people. That doesn't mean, men, that we are weak. No, we are strong. But under control. Our strength is not our own. Our strength comes from the Lord God Almighty. And that strength manifests itself not in selfish pursuits, but in serving and loving and giving and providing. I put this quote in your notes. At the end, um, 18th century philosopher, uh, statesman Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. We have been given a responsibility, man. We've been given a mandate. Use what the Lord has given you. Use the transforming power that is yours in Christ to walk with him, to know him, and to serve the others around you. Be like Jesus. Strength under control. Act like Jesus. Take the initiative. Our blessed Father, here we stand at the edge of this old year looking 
to a new year starting tomorrow. With resolve, with purposed and focused minds, would you find us committed to know you, to walk with you, to boast in Jesus, to boast in his grace, his kindness toward us, that he might be the focus of conversation, focus of our attention, spare us from mindless, time-wasting things that suck away energy from knowing you and walking with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.